The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about how Trump is beating the broadcasters again, why traditional is the new radical in Hollywood, and if trans women should be allowed to play in women's chess matches. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, says that he was hardly surprised that Donald Trump chose not to participate in last night's Republican candidates debate. He argues that Trump no longer needs the TV networks, and he joins me now alongside Douglas Murray, who profiles the no-hoper Republican candidates looking to pip Trump to the nomination. Freddie, first of all, can I get your reaction to last night's debate? Who came out on top? Well, it's true to say that uh, Donald Trump is making America watch him again. Um, to a certain extent, America has never stopped watching him. But there's always been this sort of idea that there's Trump fatigue among the public, that people are fed up, they're exhausted with all the legal stories. They're just tired of just endlessly talking about Donald Trump. However, he still is uh, the biggest draw on the American right. And to a certain extent, uh, on the American left and center too. He's always the story in some way. Uh, and of course, last night we had the Republican debates, uh, the first Republican debate, uh, and it was quite a fiery debate, quite an interesting one. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was widely seen to have won the debate. One saw one poll that had him, um, 28% of people thought he won the debate. But he did that largely by being the person that everyone shouted at. And to a certain extent, in a way, he imitated what Donald Trump did in 2015, which was to be the shocking person in the room. But of course, even though he did that quite well in some ways, he can't be Donald Trump. Nobody can. Uh, and nobody has that ability to grab global attention, uh, which Donald Trump, of course, did at the same time during his interview with Tucker Carlson, which aired while the debate was going on. And it, I think within three hours, it had over 100 million views. The Republican candidates just cannot compete with that sort of engagement. So Donald Trump doesn't need the television networks anymore like he did before. Um, he's just able to make the story about himself because to some extent, American politics is stuck. And it's just when the American media are stuck, they always talk about Donald Trump, even when they don't want to. Douglas, what did you make of last night's debate? In your column this week, you write about some of these candidates who you refer to as the hopeless optimists. I mean, did any of them impress you? Uh, no. I mean, at, at both sides of the stage, uh, there was Doug Burgum and uh, Asa Hutchinson. And they, Hutchinson did better. Doug Burgum was just clearly completely unfit to be on the stage. And so, and they were the ones who, and there are a lot of other people, as I mentioned in my column this week, who are beneath them. It's, it's slightly like that character in succession. Beneath 1%? Yeah, yeah. 
there's a there's a category of hell below even where Doug Bergam is, which is the people, of course, didn't make the debate stage. The the Chris Christie, among others, or Chris Christians particularly, said it's time for those guys to drop out. You know, the people who didn't make the stage. I think that the thing after last night will be there are clearly two people who were on the stage who should drop out. But as I mentioned in my column and tying in with what Freddie just said, in some ways, all of that is a sideshow because you could take every single Republican candidate apart from Trump, add it all together, and you still don't get a percentage that beats Trump among the Republican primary voters. And that is a really big question. I mean, there was so much dissension on the stage, some really fruitful discussion, I thought, some very interesting policy differences. And the most obvious thing was, yes, Vivek Ramaswamy making his audacious but pretty effective attempt to break through in the same style that Trump did ahead of 2016. And that seemed to go down well in the hall and in exit holes as well. But then you could say that simply because he has nothing to lose. And, uh, of course, Governor DeSantis does. Governor DeSantis is still polling ahead of, of all of the others other than Trump. So it was DeSantis's to lose, and I don't think he did lose it. Freddie, your piece this week looks at the kind of broader phenomenon of, of broadcasting and how Trump has, has changed that landscape. Can you, can you say a bit about that? Well, I think to quite a considerable extent, I think Donald Trump, the story of Donald Trump is the story of the decline of legacy media. Um, and if you go back to 2015, when Donald Trump first sort of blew up uh, as a candidate, he did so by almost kind of dancing on the grave of information television as a serious thing. I mean, these debates, candidate debates, never drew quite the same audience as the big presidential debates between the final two nominees, but they were still significant and candidates had to pay homage to them to a certain extent. And of course, Trump is different because he's a president and so his status is different. But nonetheless, you probably any, in any other circumstance, you'd have expected a front runner and possibly even a former president to attend those debates because they want the media to keep projecting them in the national consciousness. Trump doesn't have to do that and now we're in a different era than we were in in 2015. We're in 2024. And the media, the internet in particular, has changed. And if you look at Facebook and to lesser, but still to some extent, Twitter or X, they are no longer the public online square. They are no longer the, the place where the conversation all happens. Trump, of course, was banned by Twitter, but he's now allowed back. But he's still not tweeting or Xing. But he is using instead his true so social platform, which has a big following, and that's where he talks to his followers, his base. And there are a multiplicity of other um, smaller platforms, hundreds really, possibly even thousands of places where Trump fans, Trumpists are talking to each other, where Republicans are talking to each other, where they're having a very different conversation um, to the conversation that the legacy media is having about Trump. And that includes, to a, to a large extent, Fox News. And so what it means is that the Trump movement is uh, less social, it's more subterranean. And as a result, it's very hard for the legacy media, for journalists like, like me, to really understand what's going on because you can't follow 
the conversation that closely. You can keep an eye on true social, but in fact, there's lots of other conversations going on all the time. And the only way in which people can judge the success of the Trump movement, and perhaps this is always the case, but I think it's more so this time, is by looking at the polls. And they can see by the polls that the Trump movement is still big, and it's bigger than ever, arguably, and it's uh, it's still very, very powerful. Um, but they are they, the, the, any idea that uh, legacy media was able to shape the outcome of the election, probably often exaggerated in the past, um, but it's not true now, and Trump has revealed that to be the case. And Dad, as well, it seems likely that Trump might win the Republican primary. I mean, how do you think he'll fare against Joe Biden, perhaps, or, or against whoever is running for the Democrats? Well, this is the really, this is the really crucial question. Going by the polls, were things all to move ahead seamlessly? It seems hard to see how the Republican nominee is not Donald Trump. There are, you know, every time there's an in- another indictment, it either does nothing to dent his approval ratings among Republican primary voters, or it actually increases them. His decision not to turn up to the debate uh, could easily be portrayed, I think, should be by others as being self anti-democratic, um, uh, showing a disdain and a contempt for the whole process, and indeed a weakness. Uh, the weakness of not being willing to be challenged. Um, so it, it could all be used against him. It's just that none of it seems to dent him. So everything moving along uh, on uh, the, the the sort of path that you might expect, yes, he would be the nominee. But I would add, these are long years. These are very long years that we are in. We are over a year away from the next presidential election. Uh, we have two lead candidates, Biden and Trump, who week by week are, I would argue, diminishing themselves. You have two parties, both the Democrats and the Republicans, very, very unhappy with their front runners. And so, as I say, anything in fact can happen. If for any reason Biden was not going to run, that would bring the whole Trump question into a different kind of light. If for any reason Trump wasn't going to run as the nominee, that would bring the whole Biden question into a different light. So I would simply not predict any of this. It is it is easy to see on the current trajectory how Trump becomes the, the nominee. And yet, as I say, absolutely every day, something else can come into play. It can be a health issue for one side or the other. It can be an indictment for one side or the other. It can be a legal, a new legal process for one side or the other. And at some point, the sheer mountain of uh, indictments and charges against Trump may actually add up to something. Thank you, Freddie and Douglas. Next, this week's notebook is written by comic book writer and producer Mark Miller, who's the author of material that inspired Hollywood hits such as Kick-Ass and Kingsman. He's now the president of Netflix Miller World Division, and he joins me now. Mark, there was a part of your notebook that particularly intrigued me, which is when you talk about the suggestion that the traditional has become the new radical in Hollywood, particularly when it comes to religious views. Can you explain to listeners what you mean by that? I think every, everything's cyclical, isn't it? You know, so like, what what is shocking at one time in, in, in history is completely dull and normal, you know, pretty quickly. And now that, you know, 
like anything goes, you know, the idea of being sort of traditional is the most radical thing you can possibly be. And I kind of love it because it's so shocking because the kind of material I do is pretty shocking. So people expect me to be a certain way. And then they're quite shocked when I, you know, I'm a Scottish Catholic, you know, goes to church on a Sunday, uh, three kids and so on, you know. And I, I kind of love it when people's jaws hit the floor at that. We live in such strange times. And you, and you regale quite a funny story in your notebook. Perhaps you might retell it again for the podcast. Yeah, it was years ago. I was at an investor's meeting years ago where um, somebody was starting something up and they wanted a bunch of people to put money into it. So I was out in the Hollywood Hills and there was a whole bunch. It was a very random group. We all worked in the entertainment industry in some way. And uh, the subject of religion came up and it was quite interesting. It was just chat over dinner. And uh, everyone was an atheist around the table, of course, because it's modern day America. Uh, and there was a couple of Buddhists. And there was one guy from the music industry who was a Satanist. Uh, and everybody was really respectful. They were kind of like, oh, Buddhism, that's fascinating. And Satanism, what is that? How did you get into that and everything, you know? And then I said I was a Catholic and everybody was like, surely not anymore. And I was like, no, no, I still go to church on a Sunday, you know? And and even the Satanist was looking at me like, I've never heard anything so outrageous in my life, you know? So, and I love that, <laughs> you know? Like, I think it's a bit like being a punk in 1976, I think, being a Catholic in 2012. <laughs> and, and tell us about your new... Netflix show, The Chosen One, because it, it is a religious story in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, well, all my life I'd wanted to do, um, I guess, a sequel to the Bible, you know, but it's something that's always been percolating in the back of my head. Like, I, I loved The Omen when I was a kid, and I loved the idea of a movie or a, a book that was a sequel to the New Testament. You know, you had the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then we almost had a trailer for the Third Testament that 2,000 years on has never shown up. You know, so the idea of Jesus coming back in Armageddon, you know, the big battle with the Antichrist. And as a kid, I wanted the omen to be that, and the omen never really was. It was a kind of, I mean, the first movie was great, but then it was just kind of a slasher movie, you know, it didn't really kind of tackle those big issues. Probably a little too too dangerous, you know, back in the 1970s. But like, um, so I thought, I'll do it myself, you know. So I, I did a story about Jesus back in the modern world, you know, like uh, the idea of some kid finding out when he's 12 years old that he's the return Jesus. And he has this incredible destiny you can read about in the book of Revelation. Like it's going to happen to someone, you know, so it's just some some little boy who's 12 and he's watching TV and reading comic books like the rest of us and then finds out who he really is. And the Antichrist is out there and the Battle of Armageddon awaits. So the show's about that. It's called The Chosen One. And uh, my original book I wrote 19 years ago uh, was set in America, set in a Chicago suburb. And now it's set in uh, northern Mexico, which I loved. It was a great decision on the part of Netflix Latin America, like our Latin American division made a great point where they said, you know, like I said, America is a much more secular society than it, it used to be. A movie like The Omen or The Exorcist wouldn't have the power now in, in America, whereas it's still a very faith-based culture down in Mexico and uh, and it seems to have gone well. And are there any depictions of Christianity in modern cinema that you think are particularly well done at the moment? Well, it's interesting, you don't really see much in terms of Christianity. But when I was growing up, you know, the Saturday afternoon movies you would watch that were made in the 40s and the 50s. Um, it was a thing, biblical epics and so on were a thing. And Christianity, I guess, was a big, bigger part of people's lives. But now you don't really see much, you know, like, you, you, you'll get movies where, you know, the priest is the bad guy and the, you know, the, this big twist is the priest turns out to be the monster or whatever, you know, but, but you never see anything kind of positive. And I think my experience of Christianity is... Only a positive one. I grew up blue collar, working class Catholic, and uh, and have only happy memories of it being an altar boy and so on. And and there's something to be quite nice to do something that was on the side of the angels, you know. And and like I say, my stuff is pretty extreme usually, um, so it's quite a nice change of pace for me too. Thank you, Mark. And finally, should trans women be allowed to compete in women's chess? 
John McLean argues in this week's magazine that there are cognitive factors which give males an unfair advantage. To discuss his article, we are joined by chess enthusiasts and spectator contributors Debbie Hayton and Zoe Strimple. Debbie, you've written about the issue of trans women competing in women's chess matches in a blog for Unheard. Could you start by taking our listeners through your take and why you think it makes sense for women's only competitions to exclude trans women? Well, I think there's two separate issues here. There's the uh, need or the appropriateness of women's competition and whether trans women should be included in those competitions. And they're two, they're two separate questions. Certainly on the second one, which is easier, is that uh, trans women, in my view, are not women. So if the separate competitions for a certain group, and it might not be, in this case, it's women. In other situations, it may be youngsters. If we're looking at separate competitions for separate groups, then trans women should be in a separate group not lumped in with women. It doesn't make any sense to have a group women plus trans women. Zoe, what about you? I I know you're a keen chess player. Do you think that trans women should be allowed to play in women's chess matches? Yes, I do. And I strongly disagree, as I predicted, with all the arguments saying that they shouldn't. Although I I agree with Debbie's point that a woman's competition is, is a woman's competition. So we, you know, perhaps on that basis alone, I suppose my real problem is that when you end up reading, and I, I hate to say this about a piece in, in my beloved spectator, but that piece that you're running this week, I mean, it's basically just a, a pain, pain, P-A-E-N, I never had to pronounce that, to testosterone. It's testosterone not only makes men so strong and, you know, all that stuff, which, which is clearly those physical differences are undisputable, but it has all these wonderful cognitive advantages. And really what's left to women is just empathy. And I just, I, I happen to have done a gender studies degree a long time ago. Um, and and I, in the course of that, I read some really hard-boiled neuroscientific and psychological research by, you know, Cambridge and Columbia professors and things like that, that, that looked at this and looked at the sheer amount of sort of bias in the very questions that are asked in research about men and women's different cognition. So I'm very, very skeptical that testosterone is the thing that make men have these wonderful spatio-visual capacities that women just don't have. Women are just, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen in the early 2000s obviously made a huge splash by saying, well, this is just how men think they're better suited to logic and women are literally better suited to empathy. And my, just to wrap up this spiel, I mean, I just find it baffling how quick people are to dismiss the fact that social conditioning isn't just some sort of woke thing that's been made up. The barriers to women doing anything remotely male, especially chess, have only literally just come down. I mean, my mother wasn't even allowed to do science A-level. She had to fight to do that. She was told it wasn't feminine. So how are we so confident that it's, it's, it's nature and it's not social conditioning? All things being equal is going to take a lot more time to find that out. So I'm not satisfied with this idea that men are just naturally endowed with this wonderful testosterone that makes them so logical and women women aren't able to do that. I think there have been loads of tests that show, or studies rather, that show that it's about confidence, about women getting psyched out by the presence of men, perhaps even perving on them or whatever. And when it's blinded and women don't know the, gen- the sex of the person they're playing, they actually perform as well as men. And and people aren't really giving in, giving those those arguments a look in, I think. Well, Zoe, so, I mean, do you think therefore that the best kind of competition we could have would just be that anyone could enter perhaps you couldn't see who was playing you which in a game like chess could be done and also as you say it's not to do with physical strength so 
Well, I actually think there shouldn't be, I, I'm sad there's women's chess. I don't think there should be women's chess. Um, I think the idea is that we're getting to this point in society slowly. And it's wonderful to see the champions in China and India. I mean, it's funny that non-Western societies are producing the best women chess players. But I would hope that we're working on the underpinning problems that lead to this kind of huge issue, perhaps that psychs women out. And I, yeah, I do. I think that, you know, the answer is not to say, oh, poor women are so tremulous, but to just crack down on men behaving badly in, in mixed competitions. And, and yeah, keep it, keep it open to anyone. Trans women, women, men, trans men. Chess is not, people call it a sport. I've never understood that. Uh, I wonder what you make of, of that argument, Debbie, and whether you agree with the line in the piece that there are cognitive differences between the sexes, uh, as well as the physical differences between the sexes, which makes the argument that there could be advantages or disadvantages when it comes to doing mixed matches as opposed to keeping the sexes separate? Well, there are, there are certainly differences between female and male psychology. Most, most men are attracted to women and most women are attracted to men. That, that's uh, not controversial to say, I, I would hope. So there's differences there. There's also differences in young children. We talk about testosterone affecting puberty, but I've had sons and daughters and they behave differently as youngsters, even when you, even when you try to uh, treat them in pretty much the same way. It seems to me that we're making what the null hypothesis should be. We should, we should be saying, I think, what is the null hypothesis? Should we expect that male and female psychology is the same in every single respect? Or are there differences? And if there are differences, then perhaps one sex may have an advantage over the other. And in, in chess, it appears empirically to be men because uh, men, men tend to dominate. That's how I think about that. But I don't really want to get into the, uh, the discussion about is it nature or nurture? Whether it's nature or nurture, the evidence is, is that women are underrepresented in chess and that alongside open competition, which men and women, which everybody can join in, alongside open competition, it's been felt appropriate to put on competitions just for women. Now, if you allow trans women to join in those competitions, then you're allowing a group of males, a group of men, if you want to say that, to take part in those competitions, which I think just negates the whole purpose of having that comp that separate competition. Just to slightly flip it, Hezo, do you think that women should be allowed to take part in the men's competition, should they wish? I th they can, I think. Yeah, can I, they? I've never known a men's competition. I, all I, I, I think they don't exist. First, yeah. Personally, all I know is that there's open competition, and they're the only yeah. competitions I've ever played in. Yeah, no, I think I think the men's the men's ones are open. See, it's interesting because my when I first read about this ban on um, trans women, I thought, oh, that's that's funny because a trans woman is unlikely to psych out a, a female player, a young female player, by basically open disdain or you know Kasparov and all the great they they hate they they were so horrible. I interviewed you know Judith Pulgar, who's the world's best female chess player last year and you know, she was talking about what it was like playing Kasparov and who she eventually beat by the way in 2002 and there, there is a real you know there was such an you we cannot gloss over the degree of misogyny that dominated women's attempts to play chess and frankly nobody men would not want to play something that they knew that they were going to be the only man in the room and all the women were going to laugh at them just by the fact that they were men so I mean I I, I think for that issue trans women are less of a threat perhaps I've also talked to, for instance, Anna Kramling, who's this incredibly gorgeous chess sort of chess fluencer. She's she's a woman master, actually, not a not a not a mixed gender kind of open field one. But her parents, she has a female grandmaster mother and a grandmaster father, 
And she was describing some really bad behavior when she plays against men. They say, look, you're distracting me because you're so pretty. That's the kind of thing I think is a much bigger threat to women's ability to think facially than this so-called handicap of not having testosterone. I mean, I, I agree with Debbie completely that clearly there are some psychological differences. I'm not sure chess is in the realms of psychology, but I think the arguments are more about cognition and, neuro, and neuroscience and, and the kind of neurons that women can access. And it, these pieces are so depressing that the, the, the spectator one is just going on about how testosterone gives all these cognitive abilities. It doesn't say anything like, oh, what women can do X, Y, Z. It's just sort of like, oh, I know what they're going to say. Women are good at empathy. We're back to that thing again. Is part of it, do you think, then, a... Um... Do you think that, that chess should not be categorized as a sport? Yeah. And let's, I agree completely. And I think let's give it 20 years of all things being equal before we decide women's cognition is less suited to spatio-visual talent in the way that chess requires. I, I, and yeah, getting rid of the kind of sport designation, as I said, I think, I think that's weird. I think that let's, let's stick with what we know about testosterone and, and leave a much more open mind about what it means for the way women think. Uh, can I just come in and say one more thing, actually, because uh, I just want to agree with Zoe about the social environment in which chess is played. And I play a lot of internet chess, and I put my name up and my picture up so that uh, other players will probably assume that I'm female, but I'm playing in an open competition. And what's interesting is, is, that, uh, is that is the number of times I've been asked the question, is your boyfriend playing your moves for you? And that keeps coming. That that keeps coming up. I smile and I say, "No, I'm playing my own." But uh, it does underpin some of the uh, attitudes which do go on in chess. It's not a, you know, it do, it has its social. It, it has its issues among with ed, along with every other discipline. I think. Thank you, Debbie and Zoe, and that's everything this week. As ever, please do pick up the magazine to read everything we've talked about. I'm Laura Prendergast, and I'm William Moore, and we hope you'll join us again next week.